HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Emily Ruff. Emily is a community herbalist and health educator who has practiced the art and science of plant healing for over a decade. Her studies have taken her to three continents where she has studied under indigenous healers of many traditions. Emily founded Arenda Herbals and is director of the Florida School of Holistic Living. Through the school, she founded the Community Herbal Clinic and the Florida Herbal Conference. The Florida Herbal Conference is coming up uh, February 15th through the 17th. 2013 in Orlando, and you can find out about it at floridaherbalconference.org. We'll talk about that a bit later. You can visit Emily at emilyruff.com. Emily, welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You know, many of uh, y'all listening know Emily from her mentoring in the Rosemary's Remedies course with Rosemary Gladstar that Learning Herbs did fairly recently. And uh, so that's where I met Emily, up at Sage Mountain. And you were apprenticed, you've apprenticed with Rosemary Gladstone for years. So what's that like? Tell us about that experience. Um, pretty much a dream come true, I would say, for anyone that has a love of plants and healing. Um, Rosemary, for many of us, has been a mentor through her books for many decades and through her correspondence course. And so any of you that have had the chance to meet her at a conference or the international, the women's conference maybe, um, know that she just has such wisdom, but also such a presence about her, such a spirit. And I think that as much as she shares this really deep knowledge of the plant. She also shares that sort of spiritual wisdom, that life wisdom with many of us just by being around her. So um, for being able to study with her, apprentice with her for the past eight or nine years has really been a gift, but um, especially this past summer to get to share a home with her at Sage Mountain. It's truly a blessing. It's, it was, it, and it was really amazing just to see you know, how you're able to work in the gardens there and help with the, with the, you know, take care of the apothecary and all the different things there, and just a really a lifestyle thing. Is that what it's? Um, you know, I sort of kind of noticed that a lot of people think herbalism's about, um, you know, fixing a health problem, but really is a lifestyle, and that's kind of something that Rosemary really encourages, right? Absolutely. It's about the day-to-day choices. So like she says in her Herbal Recipes book, you can't get good health from a cup of tea. It's about the choices that you make, the lifestyle choices that you make day in and day out. And that's more than a commitment to taking your herbs consistently, though that's certainly a big part of it. But the food choices that we make, the ability to get outside and have some fresh air, to exercise, commune with the plants, find joy in our life, all of those aspects are an important part of our daily medicine too. So let's go back in time a bit. <laughs> uh, you you come from a family of botanists and gardeners. So and your dad was a botany professor. So this is kind of like something that that you were just kind of you know it was it's almost hereditary. <laughs> All right. In a sense, absolutely. I was you know I always remark that I was learning Latin names like at the age of three <laughs> with my dad walking around in the forest behind my house and taking plant walks and we'd come upon the camphor tree and you know we wouldn't leave until I would recite Cinnamomum camphora three or four times and um, so certainly having an introduction to the plant world um, in that really intimate way and then with my grandfather who's an urban farmer. 
you know, around that same age, he set aside some garden beds that were my bed. So as a child, it was my responsibility to tend to the pepper plants and tend to the tomatoes. And um, so that early relationship with the plants really opened the door for me to then as an adult, learn more about their healing benefits and healing properties because that wasn't necessarily a part of the teachings of my parents or grandparents. That was something sort of new that I got to add and introduce to them later on in life. But certainly um, any of you that have had a family member, a relative that's been a gardener, worked on the land knows how important that early introduction to nature and to the plant world really is. And so um, those of you that are adults listening that have children in your lives, even if it's a neighbor or a niece or a nephew, the more that we can really bring kids away from the the Xbox and the Wii and the <laughs> Facebook and out into nature, it, the earlier we can do that, the more that that instills that love for them. I agree. You know, I, I, um, I have a 13 year old boy and, and it's, uh, though we haven't had the Xbox yet, he's still, you know, he, he loves being on the screen. And, and we were people that early on, we were doing as much as we could with plants, with the kids and stuff. And, uh, but what I do see is even though he, you know, is do he does these things that the other kids do he definitely has that sense of wanting to be outdoors and wanting to learn and spend like he actually really enjoys it and looks forward to the days that he has so it actually works and it, as you see with emily folks look what happens when you do this with your children <laughs> <laughs> um and so this led you to traveling i'm really interested in hearing about um so you so basically you, you were in you had that instilled in you at an early age, and then you it's at some point you 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 took this on as your own in your own path. And was that about the time you started traveling? Or mm-hmm. it certainly was. In fact, when I was eighteen, I traveled down to Guatemala, um, and more to appease a travel bug than to really realize I was going to set out on my life's journey. But um, I traveled to Guatemala, and I happened into a position where. Um, I was able to apprentice with a doctor in the village where I was staying. And um, it really changed everything that I knew about wellness, about health, about medicine. Um, it was, a, you know, the doctors that practice in more traditional ways aren't like the five-minute quick in-and-out doctor visit that we're used to in the United States. You know, the doctor visit there, the first thing we would do is we would burn some incense and smudge and then we would sing and we would pray and then we would spend 30 or 40 minutes catching up about a person's family. So, you know, right there, we've spent more time with a person getting to know them than most people get out of, you know, six or seven visits combined to get to see their doctor. Um, But that was really where I was awakened to the plants because we would see a patient and then instead of sending them to a pharmacy, which, you know, you'd have to travel five or six villages over to get to one of those, we would take them out to the gardens and the forest behind the house Hmm. and we would teach them about the plants, introduce them to the plants, show them how to harvest them, bring them inside, show them how to prepare them and really empower them with sort of the goal of hopefully we wouldn't have to see them very much in the future because they would have the experience and the knowledge they needed to care for themselves. And that was sort of what what started it out. I returned to the States and honestly, a part of it was I returned to the States um, with a bit of a stomach bug uh, from my travels, which isn't uncommon, but I unfortunately or fortunately managed to get it at the very tail end of my trip as Mm -hmm. I was flying home. And so after a few days of uh, great discomfort, I went and saw my family physician and I received a round of pharmaceuticals that made the condition a lot worse. 
And I was sort of bouncing for several weeks between different cocktails of drugs and different specialists. And finally, it was through a courier message down to that doctor I had apprenticed with that I was given the suggestion of some herbs to take. And within a few days, my symptoms cleared up after weeks and weeks of being really desperately ill. And that was a big awakening for me to really have this personal experience, seeing how the modern medical system isn't always serving our needs. And and a lot of times it's making them worse. I was going to ask you if there was any specific experience that was the turnaround point, you know, when you were traveling and you had that aha, you know, like this is what I want to do. And it sounds like that was it, huh? That was it. Absolutely. Do you remember one of the herbs or what was, I mean, were there there Guatemala herbs or were there ones you could get? They were, but you know, I live in Florida and so something really unique to the collection of medicinal plants that our ecology uh, thrives here is that many of our medicinal plants are um, sort of travelers themselves from other countries. We have the good fortune of having an environment where plants from India and Africa And so one of the plants that he had recommended was a plant that's often known as worm seed or Mexican tea. And one of its names is also epizote. And epizote is an herb that's used very traditionally for parasites, amoeba, bacteria, fungal infections, and just so happened to be a very common weed here in Central Florida. So a lot of good crossover there. Oh, wow. And then at that point, you're like, okay, I want to learn learn a little more. I want to you know, get into this. And did is that why you traveled more to learn more about plants? Absolutely. Yeah, I did do a lot of traveling. I um, continued to go back down to Central America, um, Mexico, Guatemala, and travel and study there. Um, and then also States. Um, that was around the time that I was introduced to Rosemary's work and I began to sort of study through her correspondence and her books and then had the good fortune of completing her apprentice program a few years after that. Um, and so just really spent several years just with a voracious appetite for learning about the plants. Um, and especially in traveling, that was really important for me because the plants that backyard medicine here are not the plants that we um, find in Rosemary's books necessarily. And so I really had to travel um, to other places to learn about them a little bit more. Such as the distant and foreign Northeast <laughs> right. to, to, to visit some of the plants that you don't have you're not we don't have. there in Florida. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> so let's see here. You know, you since you are in Florida there and you have a lot of herbs growing around you that a lot of us have heard of but don't have, you know, access to or the fortune to to study up close. I thought what we would do it would be fun for folks listening is like, you know, get a little bit of a do a little bit of virtual uh, plant walk, if you will, because you're um, also thinking about maybe putting together a, a book in the future or so on 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 the plants of uh, the botanical uses of the plants of Florida. That in the works. So yeah. maybe sometime next year we'll uh, be back on to talk about that. Oh, but that, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's see. So let's let's do that. Let's 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 go on a little plant walk here, and uh, let's start with um, probably one of your more popular Florida herbs and herbal medicine used, uh, saw palmetto. 
Mm-hmm. Sal Palmetto Berry, Sarah Noah Repin is such a amazing anti-inflammatory. Um, it's really been used um, both in a very clinical setting and also with folk history for prostate enlargement. Um, prostate cancer, even used a lot for the urinary tract. Um, these huge, huge, huge saw palmetto bushes are um, really, uh, they get their name for a reason. If you walk through a patch of them, uh, I advise you to be very well protected because they do have little saw teeth all up and down their fronds. So um, they can be quite vicious if you're uh, not prepared for that. Um, and the berries fruit in the fall. September time, October time. So we get about three or four weeks, um, one shot every year. But we're one of the few states that um, does cultivate saw palmetto, and it really is an essential part of the ecology. Um, supports over um, 61 animals and reptiles, amphibians, a whole bunch of birds and insects rely on it. And one of those animals is actually the Florida black bear. Um, who in the months of September and October, the saw palmetto berries are one of its main sources of food for those two months. Um, And unfortunately, what we have seen in the past three or four decades, due to a lot of development of different communities, housing, commercial development in the state of Florida, and especially in my area in central Florida, we've seen um, the bears really being affected by the loss of that food source due to the development of the habitat of the saw palmetto um, so it's something that I try to encourage my students to be really mindful when they're using it, um, yes. try to find a really good sustainable source for it. Um, and another issue with the saw palmetto is that it is a lot of work to harvest. And so oftentimes migrant workers are um, solicited for the harvesting process because it's not very glamorous work. You get really chewed up out there. Um, you're doing it in September and October, which in other states you may be starting to feel the fall weather, but that's still very much late summer for us in Florida. So you're hot, you're sweaty, you're getting all cut up. There's you know snakes that are supported by the saw palmetto environment that are kind of a risk. And so um, there's a lot of social justice issues too to the harvest of this plant. So I always encourage folks within the state, but especially from outside of the state to try to find a really good company to work with to source your saw palmetto so that you know that it's being sustainably harvested and mindful of those Florida black bears especially and also mindful of um, the good folks that are harvesting that medicine for us. And do you have any suggestions of a good source for, um, I'm also asking personally, so I, as, a, as a male in his in his early 40s, it's an herb that I take regularly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, my, my standard answer, especially for folks outside of Florida, you know, there's a few smaller companies, independent companies that have a pretty limited supply and mostly sell it out around here just to locals. But Mountain Rose Herbs, as you know, John, um, is always being really, really mindful about where they're sourcing their products from um, and have such an incredibly high standard of ethics both for sustainability and social justice. So they're always a really good place to start. Where, where, where else besides, uh, the, for the most of the industry in Sao Palmetto, where, are most of, where, where is it mostly coming from? Has it come from other countries or is further south or how, is it mostly coming from Florida? I know that a good bit of it is from Florida. The last um, record that I saw was somewhere around 70 to 80% is coming from the state of Florida. Um, I believe that some of it may be coming from further south. I know that it's also being cultivated right now in the Yucatan. So I know some folks are getting it from Mexico as well. And we, um, and 
for those who don't know about saw palmetto, it's a it's it's a common herb used uh, for prostate issues. But uh, what, like, I'm curious, what other things? I mean, because of course, you know, to get out of the mindset, which so many of our herbal teachers do, of like this herb for this equals this, this herb is that. And, you know, you, you kind of basically are are um, removing yourself from 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 really experiencing the wholeness of herbs and what they can offer us. So what else would you could you use this um, this herb for the berry yeah. for? In Mexico, throughout central Mexico, they consider it a tonic. Um, it's really supportive to the endocrine system. Mm-hmm. Um, and n- I wouldn't necessarily classify it as an adaptogen, but I do know that um, in the South, they use it for a lot of stress-related conditions. It is also a specific for the urinary tract, um, and it's also an antiseptic. So here in Florida, the Seminole Indians would use it to treat infections of the urinary tract. They would also use it with the respiratory system as an expectorant. You see it um, in the King's Dispensatory, that really, um, the book from like the 1800s. They list a lot of uh, respiratory conditions for saw palmetto. Um, So bronchitis, coughs, they would even use it for whooping cough and laryngitis. Um, So really connected to the respiratory system, but certainly the reproductive system is where we see it used the most in Western herbalism, both for men and women as a hormone balancer in some cases, but especially for prostate health. And uh, I don't know if you know about this too, but I, I uh, or uh, but um, I was hearing a, a lecture, Susan Weed, and it might even be in her book too, the Down There book. But uh, she was saying how um, it's it's much better to use a tincture extract than it is capsules for 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 prostate issues. Mm. Like. I could see that to be the case um, for a number of reasons, uh, the least of which would be the, the flavor of the saw palmetto berry, um, especially when you're pip- picking it ripe straight off the plant does leave a lot to be desired. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I personally, um, I agree with Susan for um, almost all of her wise wisdom, but a lot of times I do lean towards tinctures uh, over capsules. Exactly simply because it's, you know, you get a connection to the medicine. So you're tasting it versus that sort of mindless popping of the pill that still leaves us disconnected to that source of the medicine. So, yeah, it's an interesting flavor. I just started taking it recently. So <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. All right. So let's move on to uh, another uh, local herb there for you. Um, hibiscus. Yeah, and with hibiscus, you know, a lot of times we say hibiscus when we think about the ornamental uh, hibiscus, sort of that um, it's been sort of idolized on like surfboards and bathing suits. And you think about like Hawaiian ladies with hibiscus. And this is in the same family, but um, when we think about hibiscus medicinally, we're thinking about the Caribbean variety, sometimes called cranberry hibiscus, sometimes called roselle, um, hibiscus sabdorifa is the Latin name. And with this plant, we're using the calyx, um, which is the collection of sepals, um, which I sometimes think of as subpetals. So it's not technically the flower, but it's those little subpetals or sepals where the flower is connecting to the stem of the plant. Um, they'll be bright, bright red or dark, dark red, depending on the variety. Mm. And that's where the plant stores just this powerhouse of vitamin C. Um, vitamin C being one of the main nutrients that we call upon this plant for. Um, This is a tropical. There's annual and there's perennial varieties. Um, The ones that are annual, the seeds self-sow very readily. So 
once you grow it in your garden one time, you'll have it come up year after year. The leaves of the varieties we grow in Florida are also edible. So we use them a lot in salads. I'll mix them with some different greens, maybe in a stir fry or a vegetable saute. The vitamin C of the calyxes is one of the first herbs that I was introduced to when I moved to Guatemala. And throughout Central America, they actually call this plant Jamaica, which is spelled like Jamaica uh-huh. and is a to the Caribbean where this plant is native to. And the calyxes, when brewed in water, um, make it this really, really deep, beautiful, bright red color. I've actually dyed some clothing with it before, and it comes out quite lovely. Um, And that redness um, is also kind of got a a tartness to it, um, kind of reminiscent of a cranberry. So that's why it gets the name cranberry hibiscus. If you add a little bit of honey or maybe a pinch of stevia to it, I kind of think of it as an herbal Kool-Aid. It's sort of this tea that you can brew that really adds a beautiful flavor to just about any blends that you can think of. So it's nice to mix with herbs that might not be so palatable to make a beverage that you're more likely to drink often. But um, the vitamin C is also a really great nutrient to add to your herbal blends because it'll help you with the absorption and the assimilation of the the whole blend in synergy. Um, most of us know about vitamin C and it also being really good. Of course, this time of year when there's so much colds and flu viruses being passed around, um, certainly that's a helpful extra support for you. Um, and another reason that I use hibiscus regularly is that it's a blood purifier. I'm really conscious of that living in a city. Um, you know, I step outside and I'm breathing in all the exhaust from the, the busy intersection that our herbal school is very close to. And, um, you know, the water and the air and the environment of a city um, is a little bit different than, you know, there's rural farms where we have a little bit cleaner air and cleaner water. So um, having a little bit of blood purification every day is just a gentle form of detox in a way to help. Um, balance and restore the body from the effects of living in an urban area. So that's another reason why I call upon that herb pretty regularly. And uh, what a wonderful and tasty way to do that with something using hibiscus. Now, um, you know, and of course you don't have to live right there in Florida. I mean, I think Mountain Rose sells hibiscus flowers. I'm fairly certain you could just uh, get some. And, and, and are you supporting sustainable sources when you when you when you do that? Is that an, you know what I mean? Is that a, is that one that we don't have to worry too much about? Right. Because it's an annual um, and it is a prolific self-sower. So most people that are farming it are, um, you know, doing it in a, it's not necessarily something that's being wildcrafted um, in an unsustainable way, at least at this point. Okay. So we can go get our hibiscus organic or, or, you know, uh, well-harvested hibiscus flowers from places like Mountain Rose and and, uh, feel good about it. And. Add that uh, little bit of vitamin C to this, especially, yes, with the flu going around. I had my elderberry syrup this morning, that's for sure. Um, All right. So uh, another one of uh, our favorites of our passion flower, and that grows. They're native, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a few different species, Passiflora incarnata being one of the most common here in Central Florida. Um, And it is, uh, I just have to say, it's one of my favorite plant allies. In fact, the um, Florida Herbal Conference, the passion flower is sort of our our mascot, if you will, a part of our logo, um, because we really are so proud to have it growing. Now, passion passion flower does grow up into the Appalachia, so we're not um, necessarily alone in growing it, but we do have it in... um, probably I'd say 10 to 11 months out of the year. 
Um, it is cold sensitive. So in our very short winters, it does tend to die back though. Um, it's probably about 85 degrees outside here today. We're uh, recording this in mid-January. So being a very unusual winter this year. Um, and I may very well have my passion flower for 12 months this year just because it hasn't gotten very cold yet. Um, but the leaves in the vine of the plant, um, many of your listeners will be familiar with for its nervine properties. It's an herb that I call upon a lot for the treatment of anxiety and headaches, especially those that are tension-related, um, insomnia, and even some depressive conditions. Um, oftentimes, I'll tincture this up um, maybe with a few other herbs and prepare kind of a happy potion, if you will, something that'll be <laughs> lifting and also stress-relieving. I could use I think I might. I think... Uh... Some folks in Mountain Rose actually sent me some of that tincture. It's right behind me here. <laughs> Sometimes they send me uh, nerve vines in the mail when, <laughs> when when they know things are getting stressful. <laughs> That's very nice of them. But I love passion flower. Um, and also um, in, a, a great sustainable one, too, for folks. Or... Um, in the state of Florida, absolutely. You know, this is something that currently um, is very prolifically found in the wild and very mm. easy. So I wouldn't consider this something on an at-risk list. It's something that you're very common to find when you take a weed walk out in the wild. Um, so I would say, you know, definitely sourcing from Mountain Rose or maybe some of the local folks, the Florida companies, um, is a great way to get a good sustainable product. Is there a kind of a specialized Florida herbal company? Oh, that would would that be your would that be your rent to herbals? <laughs> <laughs> Primarily uh, offer blends of herbs that are grown locally um, with some that we source from some farms we work with in the Appalachian region and then also other folks like Mountain Rose if we're out of season on a product. Um, we specifically focus on using local plants um, in blends of formulas more than necessarily single herbs. Um, and, you know, we're really not yet that I'm aware of uh, do we have a herbal company uh, sourcing those single dried herbs for folks. So there's certainly a lot of product companies that are selling them um, when they can and where they can. We do that a little bit with Passion Flower. We have a relationship with some folks up in Vermont, actually. And uh, when we grow our Passion Flower, we dry it and send it up to them. And then we, they send us down some of the stuff that they're growing in the mountains that we can't grow down here. So that's been a positive relationship of getting those southerly herbs more north. Uh, and we also do that with called Sida, S-I-D-A, which is sometimes called ironweed or wireweed. Um, and some of your listeners may be familiar with Stephen Buhner and his book on Lyme disease. And ironweed or Sida is one of the herbs that he's been using in the past several years um, for the treatment of the co-infections of Lyme. And Florida one of the only places in the continental United States that it's growing in abundance. It's got some species that are native to South America and also many species that are native to Africa, which is where most commercial companies source the product from. But when you're purchasing an herb from another continent, um, in addition to quality control issues, there's all sorts of timing issues that um, can be a challenge to work with. So we're now working um, through Arenda with that herb as well with some different herbalists up north. I just had this, uh, I, I don't know, maybe there is this already, but I was, I was just had this idea of like, gosh, when you said you were trading with people in Vermont, like people, I mean, even on a personal level could 
probably come up with some kind of like wild crafting exchange program or something, right? Where we can meet people in different parts of the country and, you know, you send me a pound of this, I'll send you a pound of that type of thing. Might be a pretty cool idea. I don't know, maybe. Someone listening to this will go, oh, I like that, and I'll start that. <laughs> so, never know. <laughs> let us know when you start it, please. Yeah. Get on the list. Anyone out there, go on Herb Mentor and let us know. All right, so uh, so let's say, and again, um, before we move on here, since we mentioned Arenda Herbals, that is Arenda, O-R-E-N-D-A, herbals.com, would that be the place? Well, yep, herbalsingle.com. Arenda with an O, herbal.com, to see what Emily and her friends have brewed up in their kitchens. Um, so... You have listed here tropical chickweed. Is that related to our stellaria? Uh, distantly, um, but it's a different genus. Oh. Um, so most of your listeners are going to be familiar with stellaria, media, uh, chickweed, and that um, we do have growing in Florida. I just saw it last week poking its head above the ground, and because the winter has been so warm, I don't expect it to stick around for more than a few weeks. When we have a cold winter, we get lucky, and we maybe have it for two and a half to three months. But the rest of the year, we have a very similar plant um, that's known throughout the Caribbean as dry mary, or sometimes it's called heart leaf dry mary. And a lot of us herbalists who work with it fondly call it tropical chickweed, um, or island chickweed. Um, and it has many of the same properties as our temperate chickweed. It's a lymphatic tonic, a gentle lymphatic cleanser. It's a respiratory tonic, so it strengthens and supports the respiratory system. Any of you that have a weakness in that area would certainly benefit from using it regularly to just strengthen and support your lungs and your breathing. And then it's also very, very nutritive. So it has a really broad spectrum, especially of minerals, also has some vitamin A and some vitamin C. Um, I love throwing it into salads, using it as a base for salads. Mm. I throw it in my smoothies most mornings. Also, I use it just as an herb in tea. It has a delightful flavor. I make a pesto with it. Now, the tropical variety is a little bit different of a taste and texture than the temperate variety. The temperate variety, to me, seems a little bit more buttery, if you will, has a little bit more water in its stems. Um, the tropical variety is sort of acclimated to the heat uh, down here. And so it grows a little bit um, thinner, a little bit less water to it, slightly more astringent in its flavor. But the growth habit is very similar. So uh, without having a trained eye to know the difference, if you see them all growing around near each other, you may mistake it for temperate chickweed because it does look very similar. And it has that same... Uh, sort of benchmark that little white flower, that star-shaped flower. They carry that same mark hmm. on them. So good way to identify them. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, now, what about uh, Florida Pennyroyal? Mm, St. John's Mint. Uh, Micromeria brownii, the Latin name. And sometimes that's called Brown's Savory as well um, as a nod to the botanist, Mr. Brown, who sort of discovered or named it. Um, it's called St. John's Mint oftentimes because it grows along the banks of the St. John's River, one of the major ones here in Florida. 
Um, and it is in the mint family. And uh, if you were to smell it or taste it, you would realize why it's sometimes called Florida Penny Royal because it has a very similar taste, similar flavor, very similar chemical constitution to the European Penny Royal, the Mentha Pogium, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, very similar chemical profile. And you see them used um, a lot in the same types of applications. Both are really good for the digestive system. Both have been used for women's uh, reproductive health, um, though also both of them are contraindicated in times of pregnancy and breastfeeding. Okay. And, um, and is that, how would that be used generally? Uh, generally, I prepare it as a tea um, had a lot of colds and sniffles going around these parts in the past few weeks. Um, so many of my colleagues have been just picking a small handful, brewing an infusion, and sipping on it to alleviate their sinus congestion. Um, and it also has those um, properties similar to peppermint that can really help to settle the stomach and settle you know, indigestion, upset stomach. So I generally sip on it as a tea, um, just kind of a mild to medium steep. Now, something that's really cool about living in Florida, too, is you can cultivate uh, some very popular or commonly used um, um, herbs. And uh, you, you listed a few that you use or grow there. And uh, actually, what I, what I was going to ask about first is one we happen to be featuring on HerbMentor.com. On HerbMentor.com, we feature a... We feature a different herb every couple of months where people can do all kinds of different things with and report back and kind of all study it together and just kind of get into one one herb deep at a time if people so choose to do that. And um, the one we're doing right now is cayenne. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. Capsicum annum, one of our favorites, um, one of the herbalists that the herbalists that actually live in student of Rosemary's, but also as a student of um, Dr. Christopher. And many of your listeners may recall that Dr. Christopher had quite a fondness for cayenne. If you read the book, The School of Natural Healing, you'll see most of his formulas include it, um, if nothing else, to act as a catalyst to help the body assimilate the nutrients and properties of the other herbs in the formula. Uh, but Dr. Christopher also had a proclivity to use it um, as a simple herb by itself for everything from ulcers to an eyewash. So um, it's one that, you know, we sort of have an ancestral herbal lineage of having a fondness for cayenne. Um, and we're so fortunate that we can grow it here in this tropical climate. Um, most cayennes are annuals and um, you can harvest the seeds from them. And plant those plants again next year. There are a few varieties that are perennial. So as long as we throw a frost cloth over them when the temperature drops down those two or three times a year, we get a frost. Usually we get those um, 12 months out of the year. Um, and they're so delightful. The birds actually love them. The bees love to pollinate the flowers. And they just shoot this bright red color into your landscape, into your garden. Um, really, really stunning. Wow. And you can, and it's a great example um, here, especially getting into just food as medicine. So just kind of putting a few in your whatever you're eating, right? And it's a great way to just to kind of get the benefits. Before I studied herbalism um, and before I went down to the south, I really 
couldn't take spicy food at all. Um, it's really boring when I would eat. I, could, I didn't like hot stuff one bit. Um, but, you know, the more that you work with an herb and a spice like cayenne and the more that you introduce it slowly but consistently continue to use it and gradually increase it as your tolerance allows – um, the more you find you can tolerate. So nowadays, you know, I have my cayenne shaker and my hot sauce out on the dining room table at all times and add a little bit of spice to pretty much everything. And it's kind of interesting. I know a lot of folks up north right now might be calling upon cayenne um, to sprinkle into their snowshoes and their boots as a way to keep your toes warm. I know I've heard of that a lot. Um, but something that is really interesting to think about with spicy herbs like cayenne is that when you take those herbs in during the warm months of the year, like the hot, hot summer of Florida, if you were to take some cayenne in July, it actually helps you cool down. What happens is that it helps you to circulate uh, your blood through your circulatory system more efficiently. And in a sense, it can raise your internal temperature a bit, but what that does is it makes the external temperature feel a little bit cooler. So you'll notice that these tr- these spicy plants like cayenne tend to grow only in tropical regions and are used in these tropical types of you know Mexican, um, Spanish cooking, Asian cooking um, around the equator, around the tropical zones. Um, and it's because when you eat these foods, it helps you acclimate to the hot temperatures outside. So it's kind of interesting. Wow. That is so cool. <laughs> so for those uh, yeah, studying or on Herb Mentor now, there's some even more uh, some different information for you. Thanks. And um, what about lemongrass? Oh, that's one of my favorites. You know, my um, office is near an area of Orlando that we call Little Vietnam. And we have probably at least a half a dozen Vietnamese restaurants. And um, most of them use lemongrass very predominantly in their cooking. But they also use it for their medicine. It's one of the first herbs that they go to at the first sign of a cold or the flu or fever. Um, It's an incredible fever reducer, incredible at shortening the duration of a cold, and it's also so tasty. So this is one of those medicines that I love to work with. Um, It's something that we grow all year round here and uh, makes this big, beautiful grass that's very stunning in the landscape. In fact, I know several of my neighbors have planted it sort of like a hedge in the front of their house. Um, Gets to be several feet tall, probably at least six feet tall. And um, it's so tasty. So it's sort of one of those gateway herbs, I like to say, something that to your neighbor or your uncle or your father-in-law, the people that aren't necessarily going to otherwise take herbal medicine, you can introduce them to something like lemongrass. And because it has such a nice flavor and it's a little bit more commonly known, it's also really effective. So they'll be more likely to take it. And because it works, they'll be more likely to take it again in the future or be willing to be adventurous and try some of the other uh, less common herbs. And, and what are some of the effects of, uh, you know, actions of lemongrass? It's one of my favorite herbs to use um, at the first sign of a cold um, and all the way through it. A lot of times I'll prepare a big batch of soup, maybe a miso soup that I add a lot of lemongrass to, or just prepare it by the quart or even the half gallon as a tea, as an infusion. Um, It's also great for fevers. I've used it as a tea in this fashion and also um, with children and infants especially um, adding lemongrass to a bath and letting them soak in the benefits of it. Um, It's also been shown to be really beneficial 
beneficial to the circulatory system. It's been used in different formulas to help balance cholesterol and high blood pressure. It's also an antiseptic. So I've used it on a first aid scenario as a wound wash before when I was sort of limited to what my options were. Um, and it's used to treat respiratory infections too, coughs, bronchitis, chest colds. So You know, I just... I just realized that because uh, <laughs> I, I was wondering because you mentioned about it being you know especially where lemongrass grows as well as you saying for colds and flus and us that one of the foods I always crave when I have a especially when I get to the fever part or of a cold is like the tom yum soup from the Thai restaurant not too far away and then I was just like I wonder and I'm like just googled the recipe and then of course there's lemongrass as a big part of it. Absolutely. So, so I was like, oh, that's because I swear, like of all, sometimes people will, will, you know, will ask me, John, what do you do when you have a cold herbally? I'm like, I just get that tom yum soup from, <laughs> from the Thai restaurant, you know, because it has lemongrass and cayenne in it. <laughs> so perfect. And ginger and everything else, right? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So that's really cool. So I guess I do take lemongrass as well when I have a cold. Um, let's see here. That that thank you so much for that tour of a uh, little herb walk of, of Florida, and uh, I'm sure there's lots more plants there, right? <laughs> but we can't have the time to get. So you know, y'all listening to us right now, especially if when we're when we're first putting it up in in February or thinking or Jan, you know January actually we're in right now and uh we'd like to go down to Florida and a lot of times it's this time of year when people want to go down to the Orlando area and uh they go down with their families and they and they maybe go to one of the many many theme parks that are there but I think what Emily's come up here for you is sort of like an alternative so you can get away into Florida in the winter time and you can go to an herbal theme park <laughs> You should have that as your byline, the Florida Herbal Conference, your herbal theme park. <laughs> yeah. It might work. Um, so let's talk a bit about that. What um, what, 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 what uh, had you start this idea of the Florida Herbal Conference? Um, Rosemary planted it in my head, to be quite honest. Years and years ago, she said, you know, there's a, a thriving community of herbalists in Florida. And I must have probably laughed back at her because at the time... Um, many of us did feel very isolated. Uh, we did not have a lot of networking. We didn't have a lot of community building at the time. So I knew of two or three herbalists, but by and large, it was a very isolated scene. And Rosemary said, no, no, there's more of you there. I know there are. You should have a conference and you should bring everybody together. And I think I kind of laughed at her again. <laughs> and uh, Then I said, okay, Rosemary, well, we'll do it if you come and be the keynote speaker. And uh Last year, I guess we kind of decided that maybe she was right and that there were more of these herbalists around and um, that it was time for us to realize that our community was here and start to build uh, those connections and weave that web. And uh, so I called Rosemary up. I said, okay, it's time. And she came down and was keynote speaker for our first annual conference last March. Um, and we, I think we're all very much surprised at the fact that we had over 300 people out for wow. our friends. Um, and I would say 98% of those folks were from within the state of Florida. We have a few folks joining us from other 
places, but we had really focused last year our efforts on marketing to the Florida region. And, um, and, you know, I think folks were really hungry for it. I think it was definitely uh, the right time. People were sort of feeling that sense of isolation and, and seeking that community, that support, that networking, sharing of resources. And uh, so we had a beautiful weekend. Um, we had over 30 classes, music, you know, very much of a similar model to the conferences that Rosemary herself has been hosting for several decades up in New England. Uh, we really, those of us that had traveled to those events really appreciated the experiences that we had there, both in the academic learning of the herbs and the sharing of knowledge, but also of the sort of spiritual and personal growth that we all experience when we're gathered at those beautiful conferences. So we really wanted to um, try to replicate that, um, but with a Southern twist, of course. And uh, we uh, hope that we uh, did a great job. We had some really great feedback last year and participants seemed to really um, enjoy the experience and get a lot out of it. So much so that we were able to put together another event. So that's what we'll be having in just a month from now, our second annual Florida conference, um, which will be happening February 15th through the 17th in central Florida. It's about a 40 minute or so drive, 30, 40 minutes um, outside of the Orlando area. So those of you that want to have a winter vacation for your family, you can ship them off to the theme for the weekend and then you drive yourself over to the herb conference and eat up with them on Sunday evening. Um, it's a great time of year for us to show off the beauty of the southern state. Um, a lot of our tropical plants will sort of be hiding away and dormant for the winter, but um, most of our plants will still be out in full force. And of course, the weather, like I said today, it's a little bit unseasonably warm. It's 85 out, but um, we still have a very mild and temperate winter compared to those of you in parts further north. So it's a great opportunity to come down and soak in a little bit of vitamin D and mm. maybe just in the lake if you're feeling adventurous and uh, just get a little break from the winter and uh, come meet the Florida herbal community. We'll have 40 classes this year um, in tracks such as meeting the plants, which includes plant walks. We have a kitchen and garden track about growing and making medicine from plants. We have a clinical track for folks that are practicing or studying to practice with their community. Um, we have a mind, body, spirit track, which we feel is really important to help us get out of our heads and into a little bit more and explore some of the complementary modalities like yoga and breath work um, while we have the weekend off together in retreat. And then we also have a traditions track. Um, really a big part of our work is to reclaim the traditions of our ancestors and find ways to integrate those into the modern world. And so that's one of our tracks. And then we're especially fortunate this year to have two keynote speakers, Phyllis Light and Matthew Wood. And they are both herbalists that exemplify that aim of reclaiming our herbal heritage and finding ways to help it shine in our modern times. So they'll both be joining us from Minnesota and Alabama, respectively, to share their wisdom with us for the weekend. That sounds fantastic. And LearningHerbs.com is a proud sponsor, folks. And um, I will not be able to make it on 2013, but for 2014, it's surely on my calendar. I will not miss it. Uh, 
And um, that I just I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun exploring a new environment and um, checking out some of your cool plants down there. And hey, I'm thinking about taking, like you said, taking the kids with me. And after after it's over, I can take uh, Rowan over to the Harry Potter thing that he's always wanted to go to. <laughs> yeah, and then a couple plant hikes sounds yeah. like a good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you haven't come up with the roller coaster track yet, though. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so that's very, very exciting. And that's floridaherbalconference.org. And you have also connected with your community and bringing sustainable education to the area. Um, so you actually have like a plant sanctuary in your own property or is that the property of the um, Florida School of Holistic Living? How does that work? Yeah, it's School's Garden, actually, um, I'd wager to say it's probably the smallest botanical sanctuary in the United Plant Savers Network, but we're nonetheless proud of it. Um, we have a 40 by 40 garden space um, that we built five years ago for the community to have an open space in downtown area for meditation and for learning about gardening and about herbs. Um, we've had the space growing now for five years. Um, there's a neem tree and a Bodhi tree that are sort of the anchors of the garden. And then a lot of our medicinal herbs kind of sprinkled throughout. So lemongrass, cayenne, chaste tree berry, um, you know, hibiscus, a lot of the ones we just talked about, some ginger and um, it's just kind of a space that um, we've committed to protecting medicinal plants and really sort of a little green oasis in the middle of the concrete jungle. Um, there's not so many opportunities when you live in a city to step out of the sort of psychic energy, the, the chaos and the hustle and the bustle and find that connection to nature um, without working really, really hard. And so we wanted to have a space where people could come and enjoy it. And we're fortunate to have neighbors um, in our neighborhood surrounding the garden um, that are some really like-minded businesses. There's an organic vegetarian tea house right next to the garden. There's a yoga studio across the street, massage therapy and acupuncture on the block. So, um, so it's a little enclave of healing and wellness. And um, the garden is sort of a centerpiece for all of that. And we do a lot of our classes out in the garden, um, we have some student interns and volunteers that get to learn more about gardening through uh, the sanctuary here. And then we also hold uh, music and meditation circles every moon and full moon in the garden as a way for folks in the city to connect with those cycles of nature that even if we can't, uh, you know, always see them because of the light pollution, they're still there influencing us. And so mm. gathering um, in harmony and in meditation is a way for us to honor those cycles and attune ourselves with them more. So, yeah, we just received that honor this last summer from United Plant Savers as part of their botanical sanctuary network. I'm really honored. You know, we're sort of doing a small piece of the work in the urban area, but there's so many, I think several hundred now, botanical sanctuaries throughout the country that have saved and set aside and preserved large swaths of land um, to protect them and protect the medicinal species growing on them. And we also do have a sanctuary outside of the city, about a 40-minute drive from our urban location. That's a 500-acre botanical sanctuary, um, which we do take our students to as well when it's time to get us out of the city and to nature. Um, 
And we're just so proud and honored to be part of the work that United Plant Savers is doing with that network and that all those other botanical sanctuaries are doing. Each community is doing such really important work. And how can people find out about starting an urban or a you know plant sanctuary, whether it be urban or in their in their you know yards or or out in their land? Yeah, unitedplantsavers.org. I hope you'll check that before your podcast goes live. But um, Betsy Bancroft is the resource uh, manager for United Plant Savers. Um, she's actually Rosemary's neighbor as well up in Vermont and just a delightful herbalist that I had the blessing and privilege to spend a lot of my summer with. And she is the point person at United Plant Savers that coordinates the Botanical Sanctuary Network. So when you hop on their website, you'll get all sorts of information about why the network exists and its mission, as well as a directory of all of the plant sanctuaries to date in the country and information on how to start your own. Um, because, you know, you mentioned personal gardens and a lot of people um, have taken their backyards or their swaths of personal land and have turned them into botanical sanctuaries as well. So it's not just schools or herbal companies or, you know, commercial ventures that have been a part of this work, but a lot of individuals as well. That's that's great. And again, uh, United Plant Savers is unitedplantsavers.org. And uh, I also actually just posted, um, if you go to YouTube, dot com slash herb mentor i uh, just posted the video with betsy and rosemary a little interview that was done for rosemary's remedies it's available uh, right there on uh, for everyone to see if you want to learn a little more about that so you do quite a bit there and uh, <laughs> over there in florida and um basically uh, emily if someone's sitting here and they're listening to you and you're one of the first people that they're hearing out there who's an herbalist and doing all this wonderful stuff um What's a bit of advice on how to move forward in studying herbs? Mm, um, go outside. <laughs> get your nose out of the book and get your eyes off the computer screen. And um, my biggest piece of advice is really to learn the plants that are around you. Um, you know, in large part, I started my journey doing that um, by traveling to other places where people knew more about the plants, the tropical plants, um, but there in most communities are such um, a great wealth of resources that can teach you about your native plants. More and more we're seeing herbalists talk about the um, importance of bioregionalism and that is learning the plants that are growing in your plant community and working with those plants first. Um, United Plant Savers really addresses a lot of the issues of the um, some of the less sustainable aspects of the herbal industry where, for instance, we're taking a bunch of saw palmetto and we're, you know, harvesting it away from the bears and using, you know, unfair labor practices and then we're selling it commercially throughout the world. And, you know, if we're just focusing on getting medicine from our backyards or from our neighbors, from the areas that we're close with, we have a direct connection to that land and that medicine. And we know when the medicine is being harvested properly and sustainably, and we also know when it's not and can make uh, good decisions about what the right medicine is for us and our families. Um, so I always, um, especially I'd say in the past five or six years, it's been really important to me to emphasize to my students to look in your backyards and find your medicine there first. Um, we're seeing more and more like 
shows like Dr. Oz and as sort of natural health comes more into the mainstream, we see all these trends and fads come up. Um, and one of, you know, some of the ones that have been most alarming to me involve sourcing medicine from the Amazonian rainforest. It's an amazing collection of plants there. The biological diversity there is probably unparalleled to anywhere in the world. And absolutely the plants that we're sourcing from there are making some incredible medicine for people. But if we're sourcing it at the cost of the you know health of the environment, the health of the plant community, or the rights of the indigenous people who first lived on that land, um, it may be helpful medicine for us in a short-term scenario, but in the long term, I don't really feel like it um, supports the ethos of herbalism. And so by bringing that sort of scale and that reach closer to home, we're able to, um, you know, really support a better practice of medicine from from the source harvesting through the time that we take that medicine. We're seeing the local food movement around the country um, really blossom. And now in most communities, there's a food co-op or a CSA or a farmer's market where you can connect to your local farm. And I think the same rules apply when it comes to our herbal medicine. The more local we can get our medicine, um, I think that, you know, the fresher it is because fresh plants are always more potent. They haven't had to travel as far. Uh, But there's also a sort of spiritual environmental connection. We're growing in the same environment that these plants are growing in. And so we share a lot of commonalities. And um, so my first suggestion is to go outside and learn the plants that are in your backyard. If an herbalist in your community um, that can help guide you through that, perhaps there is a native plant society in your community that can help introduce you to some of these plants. And then by learning what the plants are, you may be able to take that information to a resource like Herb Mentor and learn more about what the plants do from there. So I hope that that might be a helpful guidance for some of you. Thank you. And again, everyone, you can visit the conference coming up soon at the Florida at sorry, floridaherbalconference.org. So that's floridaherbalconference.org. And you can see everything Emily does. You know, her herbal company and the Florida School of Holistic Living, the conference, everything. But just going to emilyruff.com. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. It was so great. And I want to um, also just let your listeners know, too, that since many of you are coming from other places, if you are interested in the Florida Herbal Conference, if you enter the code Learning Herbs at your registration, you'll get a nice discount uh, thanks to, you know, John's support and the support of the community and wanting to honor that. So um, don't forget to plug in learningherbs.com when you register and um, take a little bit off that registration for you. Oh, thank you. And just learning herbs, right? Not learningherbs.com, just to clarify. Did you say learning herbs or which? Learning herbs. Okay, perfect. Once again, Emily, thanks so much. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Urban to Radio today. Have a great day. Visit learningherbs.com for free ebooks, courses, and monthly lessons. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and Wildcraft, an herbal adventure game. Herb Mentor Radio is produced for HerbMentor.com, our community mentoring site. Herb Mentor Radio is copyright LearningHerbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it.